you have any questions that you would like to discuss? During the Pupandiji retreat, did he ever suggest doing the choiceless awareness meditation? Or did he be suggesting the primary object? He worked really differently with each person. And so there was no general um, general rule, although he emphasized a lot um, working with the primary object. But then at different times in the practice, depending on what was happening, um, he would you know, alter the um, suggestions. Kate. Um, <laughs> she had some tests today which had not come back yet um, we saw her at lunchtime and she seemed uh, she seemed fine but the so far it's still inconclusive they were waiting for some blood tests and some EKG uh, reports There are two different ways of doing metta practice. One way is kind of a, a general metta, uh, which just sets the mind up in a, you know, a soft and spacious way, sending loving thought towards all beings. If it's done in that way, then suggest just the first part of the sitting to do it, or at the very end of a sitting, you could do it. Another way of doing metta is as a concentration practice in itself. And when it's done in that way, it can be done intensively, where that's the practice you're doing all day long. Um, and so it just depends which way it's being developed. It could be done. Uh, it would be helpful to get the proper instructions for it if you haven't yet. Um, don't necessarily expect that because you start doing it, you know, for the rest of the retreat, you're going to kind of sail out in a sea of bliss. <laughs> because, like any other practice, it it takes it takes a strong effort. You know, and you go through a lot of ups and downs with it, and it's very worthwhile to do. But sometimes people romanticize uh, what will happen. Uh, so just, you don't have false expectations. What kind? The notion of karma. Uh-huh. With uh, people who we call victims. Uh-huh. Um, and it, it just seems very touch a question to me. Mm-hmm. There's classes of people mm-hmm. that uh, you know, we can reconcile with Christ. Uh-huh. Uh-huh.
it's really quite impossible to understand the workings of karma fully uh, if you simply take it within the uh, context of one lifetime because it doesn't make sense then in many in many cases it really takes the understanding that karma is unfolding for all of us for all beings over many many lifetimes um, what's important to understand sometimes people misunderstand the idea of karma as being a kind of fatalism you know and and misunderstand it in the sense of um, our response then to situations as being, well, that's their karma, you know, and kind of an indifference or a callousness. And that really is not grasping it correctly. On the one hand, it's true that if one had a wide enough perspective, one could see that there are causes behind all of us being in the situations that we are. And at the same time, instead of it being the uh, cause of a callous withdrawing or indifference, it really can be the cause, if properly understood, of a very compassionate response. You know, and so we, we respond to the different situations of oppression or suffering that people are in. There are causes behind it. It's not happening accidentally. But that still does not uh, doesn't suggest that we should not take responsibility for it now, you know, and respond in, in the most compassionate way that we can. There is something which is called collective karma, actually. Yeah. Well, it, uh, an, example, an example would be when a whole group of people, a society or culture, all share you know, together uh, in an action. For example, you know, when, a, when a nation goes to war, for those people whose, whose minds are supporting that, agreeing with it, engaging in it, and not only those who are actually doing the fighting, there's a, there's a kind of collective karma around that intention or motivation. And it very, the motivation is very important. And so there would be a whole group of people, a whole collective of people who would share a kind of karmic result from that. Whereas there may be people within that same culture or society who are not linking their intentions with an action. And so then they wouldn't share in that collective karma. And there, there, are, many, there are many situations, not only use war as an example, but there are many uh, kind of group activities, you know, which people um, come together with a shared motive. 
So I don't know that that might be one way of understanding why, in some cases, there's a collective karmic response. It doesn't cover everything. It covers a lot. Mm-hmm. <laughs> the, and uh, I don't remember exactly. In the Buddhist teachings, there are five great laws which kind of condition the unfolding of things. Karma is just one of them. Uh, some of them have to do with, with purely natural, natural laws of physics or you know, of biology which don't have much to, does not have to do with karma. For example, if you plant an apple seed, you get an apple and not an orange. That's not a karmic result. That's the result of another, of another one of the laws. Uh, and there are five of these. And so it's not to think of karma as being the only determinant of things, although it's a major one. Mm-hmm. Are you talking about motivation in practice? Well, I think if one intends to be mindful all day through the day continuously, mm-hmm. that's the kind of intention that gives rise to that. that, right. that right. So it's that kind of intention that is. Right. That kind of intention is a good idea. In the traditions, when there's so many forms and rituals and ceremonies, this and that, it would seem that at some point, somewhere along the line, somebody came up with a way to really. Mostly the emphasis is on cultivating it moment to moment, which is the obvious way of strengthening it. Because as it's practiced in each moment, then it gets stronger. You're about intention. Yeah, the intention and the and the fruition of that intention, which is the actual moment of mindfulness. There are some reflections, you know, traditional reflections, which also serve to strengthen it, like the reflection on, on death, uh, reflection on the Buddha, reflection on the Dharma. Um, in this practice, the main emphasis is on the actual you know, moment-to-moment doing of it. Uh, but, but there are times when... Um, those kind of reflections or study, you know, outside of the context of an intensive retreat, can strengthen that intention. I just found at different times that to really stop, like, if, you know, if one spaces out and going from from sitting to stand to stop and get in touch with the intention to be mindful, then then the mindfulness is stronger. Right. right. And I just wondered right. if. Yeah, I think that's that's quite accurate, and sometimes in the beginning of a sitting, in that in that line, it's helpful to sit down and remind oneself of what one is doing. 
because you may have noticed that you might sit down at times and not have a clue as to what you're doing. (laughs) Which certainly gives rise to wandering mind and wandering thoughts. Uh, And just at the beginning of the sitting, to remind oneself, to remind the mind that this is not a time for fantasizing. It's not a time for daydreaming. It's a time to arouse that moment-to-moment attention. It does set, it sets the mind you know, in that direction, and it's helpful. I'd like to say thing. You spoke the other day about contemplating, and you just mentioned it again, contemplating the Dharma during the practice. And um, I thought, if I'm interpreting correctly, I thought what it is in my practice sometimes when there's nothing but the breath, I don't recall exactly the context of saying that. Um, before, before going the route of contemplation at that time, I would, as a, as a more primary strategy, I would take the boredom to be a feedback that the attention is not close enough. And so before getting, you know, before starting the reflective process, I would see if it were possible to arouse the effort at that time, to recognize that boredom is, is signaling something. It's signaling a lack of close microscopic attention. And so to arouse the effort then to bring the mind in more closely and more microscopically. And if you can do that, and if you can remember to do that, you see that in that increased closeness of attention, the boredom goes away. The interest, the interest arises from that. It's, it's sometimes more than boredom. Sometimes, because the breath is up here, mm-hmm. uh, the sensation is very strong. Mm-hmm. And I sometimes get a lot of, um, not headache, but um, strong uh-huh. feelings in my head from constantly mm-hmm. focusing on that area. And then do, you, then do you go into those sensations? At that time, those sensations should become the object and the focus of your attention. You know, in which case, you'd leave the breath at that time and really bring the mind in closely right, to the awareness of the sensations. So should you get the Dharma? <laughs> <laughs> well, that is, that is the actual application of the Dharma. <laughs> If you were going to reflect on the Dharma, that's what the reflection would say to do. <laughs> I'd say, yes, pay attention very closely to what's happening. Okay, it was in the talk on the factors of enlightenment. Um, That factor of enlightenment, which is called investigation of the Dharma, 
means not think, doesn't mean reflection or contemplation. It means observing carefully with, with a quality, an added quality of mind to the simple passive observation. And this added quality of mind, it's sort of an, it's an active vigilance. It's as if you were asking the question, what is happening exactly? Right? And so there's that kind of extra oomph to the observation. It's not just kind of settling back and, you know, in a totally relaxed way. It is settling back and it is being relaxed, but with that added quality you know, of sharpness, of precision, of accuracy, of care. That, that's what I meant, and that's what's meant by investigation of the Dharma. Because in that, then you begin to observe mm, both the specific characteristics of the experience, that is exactly what it is that's happening. For example, with the sensation, you see what it is. Is it heat? Is it cold? Is it pressure? Is it tightness? Is it pulling? Is it stretching? And you also see the general characteristics, namely that it's changing and that it's selfless and that it's unsatisfactory. And so that's the, that's the kind of investigation. Can you say that again? <laughs> <laughs> if, if Nibbana transcends mind and body, right. how does how do the Arah, how do the Aryans that don't experience it all the time mm. okay. remember it? Right. When you wake up from a very deep and sound sleep during the time of that deep and sound sleep, you're not aware of it, are you? No. (laughs) You're not. (laughs) Yet when you wake up, you know that you've had that deep and sound sleep. The signs, the fruit, the benefits of it, you're aware of and you you can reflect, ah, I had a very good night's sleep. It was very deep, it was very sound. It's in that way that we can remember or reflect or understand uh, the experience. Of, of reincarnation and, and future lives, 
talking about it, the question comes up, prove it. What's your response to that? <laughs> 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 it's a serious question. Uh, I, please. <laughs> it's not at that moment that suggesting reading a book resolves and You know, there's one sutta where actually somebody asks the Buddha something, something similar to that. And the, the gist of the response, I don't, I don't remember it uh, exactly, but the, the gist of it was whether there is rebirth or not, in both cases, what is the most skillful way to lead, this, to lead one's life? Is it to cultivate more greed and hatred and delusion? Or is it to learn how to abandon those? And so in, term, in, in pragmatic, practical terms of how we live our lives, it really comes down to the same thing. Do we want to live more freely, more openly, more compassionately, more lovingly, you know, with more wisdom? Or do we want to live with more suffering? No, I mean, there are ways to, to do it if you, depending on how burning the question is for you, because it is possible through the development of certain powers of mind to actually see. That takes quite an effort. You know, so if you really want to know... Start your path. The other just quick question I have is... <laughs> I seem to be stuck in this notion that by sitting longer experiencing more pain, I'm, it's kind of like taking the, the um, powers of compassion off for me, <laughs> developing more compassion, and you know, reflecting a little bit on your talk, and seeming to know somewhat of what the quali- how to cultivate the qualities of compassion. Maybe mention a few, a few ways for the rest of the treat, or just during the course of the day or in our lives, how it is that we can really open up to developing that quality. Because it seems, I'm just saying, that, you know, it seems like feeling the pain, one's own pain, I, 
identifies, associates, uh, connects us with other people's pain. Um, but it seems like there's so much more pain that, or other ways. One of the There are different ways of conceptualizing what we're doing. One way of conceptualizing it is the cultivation and development of certain factors like mindfulness or like compassion or like metta. Another way of conceptualizing it is that these qualities are the natural state of the mind and so we want to see what obscures them. Right, sort of like clouds obscuring the sun. The sun's always there. But when the clouds are present, so we don't, we don't see the sunlight. So another way of looking at it would be to see what obscures or what suppresses or hides or covers the, the natural activity of mind, of compassion. Uh, and one thing that seems to be very connected with what obscures it is the strong notion of self, of I. Because the stronger the notion of self or I, the more separate we feel. And so out of the practice itself, out of the understanding, the deepening realization of selflessness, Out of that comes uh, a very natural compassion. For example, and it's not compassion in a sentimental way. You know, do you have compassion for your arm? You know, if you put your arm in fire, you wouldn't just leave it there, would you? Probably. Take it out. Why? Because we think that this is part of us. Right? And so we take care. Right? But it's not, it's, it's not you go around saying, oh yes, I love you, Arm. <laughs> you know, it's not, it's, not, it's not sentimental. It's not even particularly expressed. Except in the way we relate to it. That's because we take it to be part of ourselves. As the feeling of separation, or put it another way, as the feeling of interconnectedness of everything becomes stronger, that same feeling of compassion, it's like a natural function of that feeling of interconnectedness. Right? Um, and so in both ways, it, it's a factor which can be cultivated. As we open to the pain, we really feel, we, we become conscious of what it feels like right, to suffer. So that we're not just lost in the morass of it, but we're conscious and aware and awake to what it's about. We can begin to relate to the suffering in others in a more conscious way. And as the feeling of separation or alienation gets less, right, and the interconnectedness gets stronger, it also begins to, to be expressed, but in a very natural way. And it's really very beautiful how it, because 
when compassion starts manifesting that way, there's not the sense of, you know, oh, how compassionate I am. There's not that, there's not that trap right, of identifying with that. But rather it's just seen as the appropriate function response of the mind. In the same way that we just you know, take, take our hand out of the fire. Actually, the whole practice of mindfulness is, is, is connected with compassion. You know, because it really, really means opening to each moment of experience with a sense of care, with a sense of embracing. Did I speak about that? Uh, I don't think so. <laughs> <laughs> it's amazing what, get, <laughs> what gets heard. <laughs> A good. Uh, you can actually you can actually bring them together. Right? Bring bring those two qualities together. And a good example of that. I mean, sometimes in the effort to be microscopic, the mind gets very tight. It can get tight if it's not done properly. Right? It gets, it gets like that. As an example of the kind of mind that can be very spacious and at the same time microscopic um, is when we're listening. Listening is a very good um, sense field to experience that openness of mind. Because when you're listening, it's as if the mind becomes very big, very wide, very accepting. You don't have to do anything about the sound. The sounds are just appearing and disappearing, and there's no need to, not only no need, but it's not very possible to manipulate the sound or do anything about it. So you can allow the mind to rest in that very open, it's like the mind, like, like vast space or a clear sky in which the sounds are simply appearing and disappearing. So it gets very, very wide and very, very spacious. 
And at the same time, we can be listening very, very carefully. And so the mind is very open and very big and very wide, and we hear everything. And naturally, that's one of the, the balances that we can develop in our practice. So I don't know if that's what you had in mind exactly. It's not. There are, there are some experiences which seem to last longer than others. However, when you go into those experiences carefully, you know, and quite, mm-hmm. quite accurately, you see that even in an experience which may be lasting over a period of time, it's ac- that experience itself is actually arising and passing away moment to moment. So... sure I'm really connecting with your question because it seems like there are two levels of perception for example suppose there's a pain in the knee right, and it's lasting a long time the whole hour right. on the level of perception of pain in the knee you can say that there's, there's a long duration of it as you go into that pain you see that, that what's actually happening is a There's a momentariness to the process of the pain. And so that's perceiving it on another level. The fact that there are many, that the duration of that momentariness with intense sensation lasts for a long time, it it doesn't really matter. That has no... sometimes, Sometimes it lasts over a long time, sometimes... You know, you notice it and the whole thing disappears. So it doesn't mean that there's necessarily an No. No, there might be, but not necessarily. What's important in that is, uh, is, to, is to bring the mind down to that level of perception where, with whatever the experience is, we're seeing that it's not one solid, unchanging mass. But that whether whether it's a sound, I mean you you know you've listened to to many sounds. I think you can hear that it's a constant. There's a there's a vibratory quality to it. It's not an unchanging, and that's true of everything. We really begin to see as you perceive that more and more clearly, 
the sense of solidity, that's one of the ways the sense of solidity of the self begins to fall away. Because you see, wherever you look, whether it's in sounds or sensations or thoughts, or wherever you look, you begin to see that there's nothing, there's nothing solid. And, and really, one of the things that happens, and I think that it's happened for all of you, you know, to some extent, is the increase in the rapidity of perception. Right? The ability of the mind to perceive more of those micro-moments. Because when we start practice, it's, it's very hard to see very many of them. I mean, maybe, maybe we see an in-breath and an out-breath at that level. But as we practice, we see that you know, many, many more noticings per minute. And as we see that, there's less and less attachment to this because <laughs> what is there to be attached to? It's, you know, it's all dissolving. Static. <laughs> have you have you spent some time where you leave the attention of the breath and put all of your attention on noticing that background stuff? Right. As you turn your attention to that stuff, are you getting, does it feel like you, you're becoming somewhat mindful of what it is that's going on there? Yeah, yeah I, th- I think that that's what the process is. And it's, it's interesting, it's, a, it's another way of understanding how in the practice we make conscious what is unconscious. Right? There, there's a lot of this unconscious stuff going on, unconscious meaning below the threshold of our awareness. Right? It's there, but our mindfulness is not strong enough to actually be conscious of it. But slowly, as you look at the mind, as you observe, first you become just vaguely aware that something's going on, and you're not very clear as to what it is. And then as you turn your attention towards it, you begin to get a clearer and clearer sense, and maybe it will turn up as you know, almost subliminal thoughts or just images, you know, maybe vague, maybe quite precise images arising in the mind. And voices. And innumerable voices. Actually, something came up in my groups today I wanted to share with you. Uh, 
talking about voices. Um, quite a few people in the groups um, were, were talking about uh, you know, how they... Just this being the last week of practice, and how sometimes it feels difficult just to keep the effort going. And you know, there are all these voices in the mind saying, "You know, I've I've worked hard, and now it's time to relax." And it reminded me of uh, a movie I saw with Richard Pryor. Is Richard Pryor uh, in concert? And it was he was doing his routine where he was talking about uh, his addiction to freebase. And if you remember, he, he's, it's a drug. Right? And he, he had a very serious accident with it. He, he got very severely burned in the preparation of smoking of it. And this was after, after he had been in the hospital. It was, it was quite very, very severe. And he was doing this routine about the voice of the pipe. You know... And he, he would go on, you know, Richard, let's have a little smoke. <laughs> Come on, Richard. You need to relax. He went on and on and on about the seductive, the seductive quality of the voice of the pipe. This week, pay attention to the voice of the pipe. And it may take many different forms. I've gotten everything I'm going to get. Might as well just ease out. I'm sure you'll find many. Be real watchful because actually the addictive quality is the same. Whether it's to the pipe or to desire, or to fear. They're just these voices in the mind. They're these thoughts in the mind. And if we're not really quite alert and quite attentive, we just get totally seduced by them. And then they condition. We become the slave of these thoughts. If we can see that it's just the voice of the pipe, it's like it gives us tremendous amount of strength to say, no, I'm not going to do that. You know, and to really reinforce the uh, commitment to alertness and attention. Speaking of voices, um, there's a level in my mind that when, when I'm very mindful of, of the breath that there are, like this woman here mentioned, a lot of voices that seem very random and mm-hmm. Perhaps. <laughs> What's amazing is to see how the mind functions as a... Uh, it's like a video. It's a videotape, you know, that has just... It records everything. You know, and so, as you said, 
it's like it pushes the playback button. And so all this stuff that's been recorded, you know, of conversations and people. And I used to sit, when, when I was practicing in India, I would sit and have whole conversations of Hindi go on in my mind. I don't know Hindi. <laughs> and it was just amazing to be listening to this conversation in what I thought was my mind. <laughs> in a language I didn't understand. <laughs> but there was quite some nerve. <laughs> but the mind picks it all up, you know, and it just is, is the accumulator of all this stuff. And so, as you said, it's in that respect that the practice, in many respects, but in this, in this particular case, the practice really functions as a cleansing of the mind. You know, it's like all this stuff comes up and out, and up and out, and and one actually does let go of a lot of this uh, accumulated, um, accumulated impressions. And over a long period of time, and as we continue that process, in some... It almost feels tangible, right? although it's not exactly tangible. The mind actually feels lighter. It feels like instead of the mind being burdened by holding all this stuff, we've released so much of it, we've let go of so much, that the mind feels lighter and softer and more open and more spacious. In relation to that, what is memory? In memory and mindfulness, I don't know. It overlaps some way. <laughs> In some traditions, they even call—I don't—I haven't studied them—they call it close placement of mindfulness. Of memory is the close placement of mindfulness. They actually in this particular way of understanding, the function of memory is included in the mental factor of perception, which is its own, which is different than mindfulness. Perception being that factor of recognition of what an object is. Right? as opposed to simply noticing the object. It's this recognizing factor. Um, but I, I don't really know more than that. Some of you talks are better than others uh, for stimulating my mind on your talk about factors of enlightenment. It seems that when you read the suttas, every time you turn around, somebody's around who's becoming an arahant with full powers. <laughs> Nowadays, it's even hard to find an arahant. They don't go around wearing a sign, you know. Okay. <laughs> I have a two-part question. One is to understand it. You can be enlightened with full powers. You can have full powers and no enlightenment. <laughs> or you can have... Uh, what's the third one? Enlightenment without powers. Right. So all three Correct. of those are possible. Correct. Okay. In the suttas, it also talks about how the Buddha says you can go back by practicing these uh, meditations and go into past lives, one, two, ten, a hundred, and so forth. Is that just back in the old days, or are there still people today practicing it now? No, it's, yeah. There are people today who can do that. Uh, like you, and 
my conjecture, and I mean your conjecture is probably equally valuable. Just in understanding um, the whole concept of parami, you know, the paramis in the mind, the, the forces of purification in the mind. For people to have had the parami to actually meet the Buddha, to have the Buddha as one's teacher, this tremendously strong, wholesome karmic force there, to have that situation happen. I mean, it's, it's very strong parami to even connect with the Dharma. I mean, when we look in the world today, how few people have the opportunity or the interest or the inclination to actually connect. And so there's strong forces which make it possible. It's not... And the fact that we're all here and practicing together with the commitment, you know, to have the strength of commitment to sit for this length of time, that's not trivial. There's some very strong parami working in the mind to lead one to that. Even stronger parami is necessary to actually meet the Buddha. And so my conjecture is that because of that, you know, their minds were very, very ripe. Because there had been a, a long and strong past development. And if the mind is in that place of maturity and ripeness, you know, you could just hear a stanza or just mm, short teaching and the possibility for the mind to open. Did I say that? No, that's what it sounded like, is that um, His Holiness the Dalai Lama in the reincarnation said, you're saying that in our practice and following our Dharma lives and who we come in contact with, one of our teachers or whoever is the Buddha, or that's what it sounded like to me. No, that, that's not what I said. <laughs> you're talking there that um, that with one something or other we open up stands that you said right or teaching what is it about who gave it or what the words are or no what I said was that the the parami necessary to actually meet the Buddha to have the Buddha as one's teacher there's some very strong karmic force which creates the condition for that to happen and that karmic force is a very high level of purity in the mind. Uh, given that foundation, then very often, and there are many of these stories, where just a simple teaching, a simple verse, is enough to open the mind. Right? Because they have, that, they have that foundation. For most of us, it takes a little bit more work. Do we handle conscience like the voice of the pipe? If you do something you shouldn't have, or you don't do something you should have, your conscience speaks to you. Do you just consider that like another thought? Uh, no, that, it's, it's always right, 
<laughs> no, there, there are two... How does that fit in the teaching? Yeah, there, there are two um, mental factors which are... They're called the guardians of the world. That's the, the name for these two mental factors. And they're both what in English are really translated as, as conscience. Um, both of them are conscience. There's there's a there's a, trans, a more specific translation in English. It's not a very somehow the doesn't capture it very well. It's translated often as moral shame and moral dread, right? and there's there's a connotation in that that's perhaps not so uh, appropriate. But it is the function of conscience, right? It's that part of the mind. It's those factors of the mind which recognizes when we're doing something that's unskillful. So the conscience isn't a conditioned thing? Well, it is. It's a mental factor, and mental factors are part of the conditioned process, but it's a wholesome factor of mind. So it's, it's developed, we're not born with it. It's not innately pure, we have to develop a conscience. If it's conditioned, in other words. Yeah, yeah. And, I mean, we may be bringing it in from past lives as highly developed, and it's obvious some people have this very strong sense, and some people don't have it all, can really do unwholesome things without much compunction at all. And you can see why it's called the guardian of the world. Because if we had this sense, if we had this strong moral sense right, of what's skillful and what's unskillful, the world would be a very harmonious place. Well, in the practice of pragmatically, how do we deal with it? Say, if I have a yogi job that has certain duties... And because I'm running short on time, I skip one of them. And that bothers me for the rest of the day. How do I deal with that recurring thought that I should have done that one extra element? Right. Do I just acknowledge it? Yeah. It's like an ordinary thought recurring. Right. Sometimes people would come to the Buddha in, as a way of, uh, almost, almost like a confession of things that they've done, you know, that were unskillful. And mostly the response would be, uh, let this be the cause of restraint in the future. You know, so we see it, we recognize it, and we learn from it. That's quite different than guilt, in which we, we're unforgiving, we keep beating ourselves, and we just create more a sense of self and I, a negative sense of self or I. That's very different than this sense of conscience, which just sees, okay, there's something done that was not skillful. We see it, we recognize it, and we let that be the cause of future wholesome action. The, the fact that it beats you up is a different mental factor than conscience. Yeah. yeah the, the, the self-judgment is not... Is not uh, that's not a wholesome factor. And that's just a lot of aversion. There's, there's a very important uh, distinction to be made, which I mentioned in, in one of the earlier talks on compassion, between compassion and sorrow. Uh, 
because sorrow has the component of aversion towards the suffering. When there's sorrow in the mind, then that's the suffering, and we feel aversion to the suffering. Compassion doesn't have that component of aversion in it. And that's why it's possible to have the mind embrace when, it's, when the compassion quality is strong, which means the mind that's not, there's no aversion to it. There's a feeling of it. Well, the, the experience of the suffering is quite different because in, in some sense it's a pure perception of it. Right? And that's why the mind can be, become very wide and embrace. And the Buddha is the, the embodiment of the perfection of that, but another, another very beautiful example of it, you know, in our times, is Mother Teresa. Who, who just works in situations and with people in the most intense suffering. And yet when you see her, you know, you get this amazing sense of joy. It's not, it's, it's not the feeling, there's not the feeling of uh, aversion in her towards it. There's a response to it, but it comes from a very... Um, almost a joyous place, you know, in, in terms of the connectedness. I don't mean joy, happy that the suffering is there, you know. Uh, and so to see in our own minds, because we confuse it a lot, and we can, we can practice that understanding very well, moment to moment. How do we feel about the pain in the knee? Right? Can we feel it with compassion, or are we feeling it with aversion? And it's, it's quite a different mind state. The one, uh, when, there's, when there's true compassion, the capacity of our mind is much greater. When there's aversion, it becomes overwhelming. Even a little bit of suffering becomes overwhelming. It's, it's, quite, a, it's quite a delicate point there, but it has very profound consequences for how we relate Yeah, it, sometimes if, if aversion is very strong and, and you note it and it, the mindfulness is not strong enough to let go of the aversion, sometimes it's necessary just to retreat a little bit. In the same way as if one is watching one's own pain and it just becomes too overwhelming and the mind's getting too tight. Right? And there's not that sense of openness and allowing. So then a timely retreat just to to let the mind come back into a state of balance again, and then again to try to open to it. Because otherwise the mind can just get, get overwhelmed and caught in negative states. You know, the, what's so um, interesting about the practice, and it's inspiring, is to see the application of the relationship that we're developing to our own experience is what is going to be manifest in our relationship to all other beings. 
if, if we cannot accept what's here, then it becomes very difficult to accept the pain or the suffering that's outside of ourselves. We may think we're accepting it, right? but on looking closer, it probably will be more sorrow than compassion. And as we practice it here, as we get more open and allowing, we get more embracing of other people's experience too, with less judgment and less aversion and less fear. And many people have experienced tremendous fear in the face of other people's suffering because we haven't learned in ourselves to be fearless you know, with our own. And so this, this, this practice is not... You know, it, is, it, is, it cannot be separated from our relationship to the world because our relationship to the world is conditioned right here. This, this is where that relationship is, is created. And what we're doing, and I hope by now that you have a clear understanding of this, we are not practicing to have certain things happen. Right? It's not state-oriented in that way. What we're practicing is a relationship to experience. And so, with that understanding... You know, one really can be accepting whatever it is that arises is fine. You know, it's painful, it's pleasant, it's slow, it's fast, it's restlessness, it's clear. Whatever it is, the question is, what is our relationship to that experience, to that state? That's what we're practicing. All those factors of enlightenment were factors of relationship. Factors of enlightenment did not include blissful sensation or, you know, happy fantasies. It doesn't matter what's happening. What does matter is how we are relating to it. What are the qualities of mind of that relation? And that's what we then manifest in the world. And so there's no, there's no possible separation between our, practice, uh, between our practice and our living. So, please continue. Use this week skillfully. Don't fight with the different things that come up. You know, it, it's natural and it's, it's understandable that at times the mind might start planning or imagining what's going to be you know, when you leave. You don't have to get into a struggle with it. And also you don't have to get lost in it. Rather be observant of that process. So you can keep the same level of effort and energy in the practice, include everything that's happening within that effort. And... and there is so much insight. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.